0: Chapter 15. Let Unfold What Will Ain't got a woman in any port, waitin' heartbreakin' for me to court. The flashy redhead slid her breasts across my meager chest, then pranced into a turn, circling under my arm. I swallowed a laugh, which came right back up and erupted gagging on the distaste I harbored toward strutting to a C&W tune with an overripe floozy. She dazzled, mistaking my croak for pleasure, and swung toward me, wrapping my arms around her and rubbing her broad, girdled rear against my parts. I shuddered, giving her yet another unintended signal, and she sidled into me nimbly, grabbed my waist with her hand, and scooted my arm over her shoulder. Engulfed in a noxious cocktail of suffocating perfume and belched beer, I gave the band a glare. Time to wind down their hard luck, hardly bearable tune. They revved into another stanza. I'd done some serious dodging to avoid the dance floor in this cavernous western joint. Met no woman's eye, kept moving from the bar to the bathroom to the shadows to the door. "'sticking close to the herd like a young wildebeest running from lions. "'The number of aging solo women here tumbled me back to middle school dances. "'Boys in a protective huddle, girls sidelined by our terror but stalking the lone stray. "'This was far worse because the women, too hungry to be coy or courteous, "'were in full pursuit of single bucks. "'The target of numerous advances, I kept backing up, desperate to melt through the wall when I found myself flanked by the redhead who paraded me triumphantly onto the dance floor. Them lonely days on the road and the hurting nights full of woe, woe, oh yeah, but no woe man in sight, no love to set things right. If you judge yourself by how others see you, I'd judge myself a half-wit loser with a rotten disposition. There were far better dance partners at the Cowboy Roundup this evening, even some charming, non-predatory women like Mamia. I could have asked one of them to dance and had a pleasant, uncomplicated conversation with her, then said goodnight and no more. Maybe it was because of Trove that this place felt so tawdry and stale, remembering the clean green of my cannabis plants in their loam, the waft of rain coming down the mountains, sun-heated ponderosas, notes of the meadowlark and the thrush, I yearned for Joaquin's porch. But these images led me inexorably to Lori, the reason that world was lost to me, and above all, she, whom I could not conceive of spending much more of my life without. Frank and my mother sashayed by. They weren't dancing close but with the ease of a couple who knew each other's moves unlike Scarlet O'Hara and me. Fun, yeah? Mamia winked. I nodded, but where I wanted to be was in bed with Tiger stretched out on my belly. The floozy zipped me toward her for a lascivious belly bump, and I went limp, trying to pass out. You okay, hun? she asked, whirling me around. I'm feeling kind of sick. Think I better sit down. Ah, oh, you'll be fine, doll. All the guys get a little light in the head when I dance with them. And the band played on. Just need a corner of your heart. Be a good enough place for me to start. A fool, oh yeah, a fool for love. Like me to start. A week after my arrival, Mamia had coaxed me to come with them, hear Frank play a set, have a drink, maybe dance it was not even on the list of things I didn't want to do, off the Alex grid of coordinates ranging from always to never. Frank joined in, the man to whom I had confessed my mortal sins, and been absolved by, and who had then gone on to treat me like a regular person, a fine new friend, who had brought my mother the first bit of light and kindly love after my father's death. Confronted with their eagerness to show me a good time, I relented and braced myself for a one-off at a c and w joint, like his son, Frank was a charismatic musician, his voice honeyed umber, the rich chiaroscuro of tones arcing into the listener's marrow. He played the guitar like one who'd been born strumming and crafted the pacing of his songs to arouse keen emotional impact. His own melodies wove in an intricate spell, but the lyrics predictable, and a tad corny fell far short of Joaquin's eloquent visions. Still, I could see why Mamia, the girl, once had a crush on Frank, and why the woman cherished his friendship. I wasted an inordinate amount of thought formulating a way to tell Joaquin that his father had become an excellent man whom I admired. Or maybe just tell him that he had nothing to fear from Frank in terms of the land and his drinking. For now. To alcoholics, now was the critical measure of success. It would be so much easier to explain about Frank in person. Frank, who would only be around for another week, I reminded myself. Come on, Bug. Try to have a little fun. What happened to your sense of whimsy? You, the ironic master of the universe, who can turn trauma into a joke, who can argue both sides against his middle. Who would have made a tall tale of this fiasco, exaggerating the horror to get laughs? Where did that guy go? Jousting in senior hall, Bug and Hirsch, with ninth graders on their shoulders, devising elaborate excuses that took twice as long to invent as the homework would have taken to do, adding turgid organs to pictures and sober history texts, sneaking three-course meals into the library? Slithering out the window when the Spanish teacher was at the board. Dating two girls in one night without either one finding out. And on and on. The guy whose infamous motto was, It's not due till sixth period. God, I missed him. Where did I leave that cool scofflaw whom almost everyone loved? Even in college, when I discovered how much I'd missed by not reading Kafka, Ellison, Faulkner, Solzhenitsyn, Vonnegut, García Márquez, T.S. Eliot, and Shakespeare, powering through them on the sly, when writing metamorphosed from chore to euphoria, when learning became my ardent quest in everything from partying to critical analysis, when I learned the art of threading carefree time through my days without compromising my studies, and the free-form trek internationally with Los Gays, cavorting through bold adventures in our cloaks of youthful invincibility. Home again after college, with no plan, waiting tables at the café, light duty that gave me time to cruise, reflect, read, write, and fool around. Not much came of my efforts to write a novel, and my situation felt very temporary even as it drew on, spanning two years of extended adolescence. Bitter restlessness fringed my romps during that time, but never interfered with my sense of play. And destiny, the faith that I was headed somewhere incredible, bound for the laurel wreath, or I would be as soon as I was launched into action by a peal of significant celestial thunder. The fire that decimated my hometown was not the call I awaited. Murder and mutilation were great material for a great writer, but more than I could tackle. Yet. They did launch me, though, in a convoluted way, by driving me to Trove, where the many loves of my life lay. Despite what I told Mamia about my being finished with the place, that's where I longed to be. Romance, friendship, writing, music, tending the green-growing world, all manner of beauty and virtue were wedded there while here I, expelled from Eden and humorless, sought to press a new future from the dregs. I could think of nothing I really wanted to do anymore, except loosen the grip of the crimson-headed floozy now that the last mournful chords of the song were dying a hideous death. She sighed, way too close to my face. You danced right off with my heart, lover boy. Now how am I supposed to go on living without it? You got your pick of hearts in this place, I boomed, way too loud. Me, I've got a mosey-on home to the wife and kids. Those twins are an ornery pair. Her spongy hand made a grab for mine, but with more agility than she'd expected after my performance on the dance floor, I slipped her grip and backed away. Can't go home smelling too strong of your sweet perfume, now can I? Hey, Polly. Mamia was at my shoulder, Frank behind her. She smiled at the flues. Shelly, she moved possessively toward me. Take a look at the young stud I roped. Meet my son, Alex, Mamia to the rescue. And I don't believe he's available. We're headed home, she added to me. Ready to go? I nodded furiously as Frank handed me my coat. Polly made a quick recovery. Y'all's son? No wonder he's such a looker, she smirked. Who's the lucky lady that got a ring on him? She glanced pointedly at my ringless finger. Let's get out of here, I muttered, taking Mamia by the arm. Slumped in the back, eyes closed while they talked. I thought about what it would be like when I was in the driver's seat after Frank left next week. Who and how would I be with Mamia? What was I going to do if I stayed around? Not many other options on the horizon. The glamour had worn off beach-bumming in Southern California, so far from Trove, Laurie. I didn't want to commit to anything too permanent, in the Ville or elsewhere, in case somehow I was granted a pardon to return to my true home. Had she told Joaquin what happened? No more than I would, neither of us willing to risk losing a man we loved, deeply, in different ways. Frank's departure, on a bleak February morning, wind-seeded snow threatening, left Mamia and me adrift. I grabbed Tiger and retreated to my bedroom, fighting to quell the uncertainty that shrouded the day. How alone my mother had been before he came, abandoned by her lousy son who was too saturated with guilt to mourn with her, left to care for and later bury her husband's aunt. My mother who went on with no assurance that her future held relief from sorrow, yet she did not reproach me nor insinuate I had anything to apologize for. Instead, she wrote, opened her soul wide to enfold me, dead or alive. And as the second winter of loneliness veiled her, an unlikely reunion with Frank breached the dark fabric and restored to her a crepuscular happiness. Even that spindly light I resented, punishing the one who had embraced me. Now the source of good cheer was gone, and I, the cause of misery, dwelled with her ye persistent albatross reminding her not to enjoy life. Frank had invited her to visit him in L.A. She'd perked a smile, then hesitated, glancing at me. Rather than encouraging her to go, I raised a deformed brow and shrugged. You too, Alex, Frank, being far too nice, proposed. L.A.'s a great town. You'll like it. Lots to do. Surfing, clubbing, music, whatever floats your boat. A laid-back place, but hopping. Hey, Tiger can clean up at the beach. Digging clams and crabs and all. There it was, a shot at one of my dreams, plattered and served with the man's characteristic gusto. Sounds good, I mumbled noncommittally. We'll stay in touch, won't we, Shelley? I'll send dates and hope you make it. And at some point I'm bound to be back through here. It's been so good to spend time with you. Both of you. He hugged her the way a good friend does, close and tight, with no lecherous undercurrents. Same way he hugged me. Same sentiment delivered with a sincere welcome to call or write whenever I wanted and a friendly admonition to stop tormenting myself and have some fun. He left, and the sulkmeister fled to his room, so he wouldn't have to comfort his mother. Pathetic. Swinging up and out of bed, I got dressed, grabbed Tige, and resoluted into the kitchen where Mamia was finishing the breakfast dishes. I gave myself a month to learn how to be a good son. Emerged no paragon, but passable, C+, plus, maybe B- minus range. A dutiful fellow whose heart wasn't strong enough to validate his efforts. She was an easy grader and ranked my efforts much higher than they deserved to be. When I made her tea and we sat and talked for an hour, she was elated. When I made dinner, which, if you remember... I did nearly every night at Joaquin's, she flooded me with compliments. Likewise, shopping, cleaning, helping out with little stuff like changing the bulbs and ceiling lights. With nothing else to do, I was gratified to find uses for my time. Couldn't get interested in writing and only sporadically in reading. Between chores and errands and surprise treats for Mamia, I knew myself to be in suspended animation waiting for my life to change. In the beginning, she trod cautiously on inquiries about my plans, but realized as the month doddered by that she needn't because I didn't have any. Only then, and in a casual way, did she begin to make a case for her old dream of my becoming a teacher. You were so happy and successful in high school. I think you'd be an inspiration teaching English to kids that age. Didn't laugh, didn't choke, didn't scream. The good son. She emailed me information on a local alternative teacher certification program that relied as much on interning in a classroom as on taking courses. But she refrained from pushing her agenda with follow-up questions or suggestions. Took a different tack, apologizing for trying to rush me out into the world. I should spend as long as I needed recovering. And if I felt up to it, maybe the two of us could take a trip together. Start in L.A., but go on to Hawaii, then into the South Pacific, Fiji, Bali. Who knew? We might even fly over to New Zealand and Australia. We had time and money. Why not spend it on a grand adventure that would give us both exciting new experiences and perspectives to revel in? She had me at Hawaii. But the subtextual core of my brain, which was a close replica of hers, knew that she was offering this bait as a means of getting me to figure out what to do instead. She, too, was waiting for my life to change. Neither of us acknowledged this shared understanding, but talked avidly about our route and destinations. In the meanwhile, as the snow gave way to young greens, I was recovering my health and strength unconsciously getting in shape for a journey of my own devising. The postman came early to Mamiya's house, often before I would shuffled into the kitchen for coffee. It shouldn't have mattered when the mail arrived, since none of it was for me, but I couldn't stop hoping. This morning, unseasonably warm like April in March, for the first time I walked past the pile without looking. Had decided on a course of action that night, in and out of sleep, a purpose and direction that I grasped as worthwhile. Good morning, sweetheart. Did you see the letters for you? Mamia smiled, her ready hug my welcome to the day. Two of them, one from Joaquin, one from Lori, separate envelopes, both mailed from Trove. Tear them open and race through them? Or keep them for later? Savoring the anticipation, though they might both be ugly condemnations, extinguishing any chance of homecoming, I slid them into the pocket of my robe and took the cup Mamia offered me. Studied the headlines of the local paper as if they held critical information. Homicide suspect arrested. Charges filed against city clerk. Teachers union calls for strike. More winter weather on the way. The longer I waited, the less important the contents of the letters became. I had resigned myself to whatever. Only the fact that they were not sent as one interested me by mid-afternoon, when, resting in my bed with tiger sprawled on my stomach, my fingers worked the edges of Joaquin's envelope. His would be first, I had decided he had less cause for venomous recriminations. It was warm, in fact, though brief, scrawled in seeming haste, simply an update on his condition, a hope that I was well, an assurance that he missed me alongside a wish that I had not left so abruptly. Okay, a slight reproof there. But of course, coupled with his understanding of my mother's need for me. One paragraph. Lines widely spaced to fill the front side of a page, and signed, Ever your friend, Joaquin. He didn't invite me back outright, but he didn't close the door on that possibility either. No bridges burned. As I folded it back up, a P.S. on the other side soared me. I'm working on a new song and need a line. Gentle friends who pass within my mind. Have you seen the golden winds below Timberline? Time after time. Dee-dee-dee-dee-da. An open hand extended to grasp mine. Emboldened by his words, I tore apart Lori's envelope. Even shorter, likely written at the post office without Joaquin's knowledge when she was mailing his. It was an unadorned apology for evicting me from Joaquin's, twice, and a somewhat grudging recognition that Trove was as much my home as hers. The last two of the four sentences she wrote were the key to her missive. Joaquin and I are expecting a baby. We're so in love. A baby? When, she didn't say. Hard not to wonder whether our illicit night might have been procreative. If it had happened then, she'd be about ten weeks along. October. Joaquin had written nothing about Lori being pregnant. He had to know. Maybe she'd conceived earlier, like in December. But the fetus surviving that New Year's Eve crash, not good odds. And Joaquin could hardly have been in love making mode with his leg in a thigh high cast. I was possessed by an unequivocal certainty, rereading the words, that it was mine, and that's why she'd told me. But how to get a message to her privately? Am I the father of this child? No way other than in person. And why would she tell me? Well, if the kid looked like me, I awoke from a dream that night, holding the image of an immense flower with a single circular indigo petal. As I watched, it opened, revealing another. Crimson. That one gave to azure, which flared wide to expose orange, to turquoise, to gold, to ivory, to crystal, which I could nearly see through, for I stood at the center, naked. The grandeur ringing me blazed my eyes. Slowly, with great care, I caressed a petal. At my touch it withered. Another, and another. Stop, I cried. Listen to me. You're mine. Several shriveled. I stood rigid, ashamed, then subdued. Let unfold what will. Do nothing but behold with humility. Be still. Divine guidance or wishful thinking? Who knows the source of visions from the dark side of the mind? Emanating from an unfulfilled yearning to dwell at the heart of beauty enraptured? I grappled with the ethereal as petals fell away and I was left exposed. So much to say and none to hear me. Yet whatever I wanted to tell them fled with the mirage. The problem with the zen-like commands the image delivered is that none of them meshed with my plans. Though their counsel may have been worth heeding given the chaos that doing things my way had wrought, I had no patience for complying. It was time to get on with my life, an impetus I acted on, the next morning. One of the local community colleges offered courses in a program called TESOL, teaching English as a second language, which would enable me to apply for jobs in foreign countries. Yes, it meant teaching simple language and grammar, not literature, but it would put me far enough away to dim the temptation of returning to Trove. An easy out and an appealing one. I could sign on as a substitute teacher at high schools here while taking TESOL classes to get my bearings in the classroom, and to see whether I could stand it. Subs were in high demand, as the classifieds indicated, qualifications as minimal as the pay. Mamia could travel with me to wherever I was hired so she'd have a piece of that trip she seemed keen on. I wouldn't mind teaching on a South Pacific island. Maybe they'd have an American school and I could get a real job there. Lots of research to do and plenty of time to do it a man without a schedule in no hurry. Before heading into the kitchen for coffee and a meaty conversation about my prospects, I typed a short reply to Joaquin. Great to hear from you. I hope you're healing well. So sorry I left you in a lurch with the greenhouse care. But you're right. My mother needs me. And it's time for me to get on with my life, much as I'd like to keep feeding off your dreams which nourished me through a rough time. We're going to be traveling pretty soon, my mother and I, and hard to reach except by email. I'll send a postcard or two along the way. Greetings to Lori. There I paused, not on Lori so much as on what I'd planned to say next, and from Tiger to Montenegro. What about Tiger on our world trip? I'd never leave him behind. But what kind of a life would it be for him? Crated on the plane, then confined to a hotel room, if we could even find a cat-friendly one? Quarantined at customs? Lori would think of that, too, and offer to take Tiger back. I deleted our travel plans. We'd figure it out. The less said, the better to them. Signed it, Your Grateful Friend Who Also Misses You, and added my own P.S., an inspiration of the moment time after time calling me to pine regrouping for the sake of tea i announced to an elated Mamia that i was going to look into her alternative licensure program and sub as i took classes my own idea at the same time i'd check out american schools in other countries where cats were welcome europe more likely than elsewhere What if I went to Germany and honored my heritage by becoming fluent, marrying a German girl, having bilingual kids with dual citizenship, and a home in each land? The possibility of adventures zipped up my spine, fortifying it. A man on the move. Which is how I ended up in a 12th grade classroom at a modest charter high school in the Burbs. First to hit me was the scent of teen glands gone wild a familiar odor from days of old, much less noxious then. Cinderblock walls abutted low-hung acoustical tiles. The windows looked just right for an old western shootout, an observation I unthought instantly so as not to put it out to stray psychopaths loitering in the schoolyard. The room's regular teacher, Mr. McKee, was a slob, his refuse strewn across the desk and bookshelves. Dregs congealing in a toxic mug, empty soda cans, half-eaten sweet roll, dead plant, a crust of filth on every surface. The center drawer stuck, the side ones squealed, and neither held a pen or marker. On the floor, under desks, and near the overflowing garbage bin lay wads of used Kleenex and paper. With kids' backpacks hunched in the aisles or on their desks, The place had the transient feel of a bus station waiting room whose occupants were on standby. My eyes roved this mess as I handed out quizzes and scrambled to quell my panic at spending the day imprisoned in it. The students were recognizably bored, lamentably passive, utterly immersed in adolescence. I picked out Hirsch, Joey, Bean Dog, Spanky, and Blip, but, alas, no Rose or Vincent, and withheld judgment on which one was me till deeper into the class. They were meant to be discussing a short story, upstream, none had read, well one boy, George, had, definitely not the me. A kid I soon learned had gotten into the Air Force Academy, an achievement that motivated him to excel. After the quiz, for a banal, transparent story that I read as they failed, and a fruitless attempt at discussion that was simply an exchange between boy George and me, I shifted gears. So, what do you guys do for fun around here? A good question for teens anywhere outside of glam cities, although the answer is a predictable nothing. However, asking it showed that I was ready to blow off the academic portion of today's learning. They lifted their heads, focused. You knew in town? Bean dog countered. I am living in my deceased great-aunt's house with my mother since the family home and my rental burned down. Is that how you got hurt? Blip plunged in, of course, that's what they'd really want to hear about, and knowing my audience, I accelerated into an heroic tale without any hesitation. So yeah, I lived through the fire in Vista Grande three years ago. the one that took out most of the town. Dramatic pause. Killed my dad when my folks' house burned to the ground. Our old dog, too. A heartstring puller for teens who loved their pets more than their parents. I tried to save them, but I shrugged, indicating my scars. Riveted. Lost my best friend in the fire. He looked kind of like you. I nodded at a kid in the back who popped out red. It was a wicked blaze. Middle of the night. Ate through the town like a demon monster. Any of you ever been in a fire? I narrowed my gaze at a pair of disbelievers near the window. Heads shook. No one spoke. It's like getting thrown into hell. You're cruising along, everything's cool, go to bed one night, and wake up to smoke, alarms, people screaming, trying to get out with some of your most valuable stuff. My worthless junker car wouldn't start. Never did when I needed it. Got a ride through the flames with an ex-con. My neighborhood was on fire as we pulled out. Smoke so thick we couldn't see headlights of other cars till we were on top of them. It was a death trip. By the time we got to my folks' house where I grew up, it was almost gone. I ran in to save... Already told you that part. I paused again. leaned on the whiteboard, legs apart head back. Now that I had them, I could take my time, let the story swell with tributaries as it meandered through the fertile veil of their desire for thrills. I hear they've started to rebuild Vista Grande again, but I'll never go back. For me, it'd be like walking into an open grave. I started pacing erratically. I was out for a long time, months, healing the burns. Didn't come to till spring. Then I took off. Thought I might go to the coast, bum around Venice, Long Beach, somewhere with lots of water like an ocean. A few titters, as I'd hoped. Stopped along the way in the mountains to help a friend finish his place and stayed on to work in his cannabis greenhouse. Best weed you've ever tasted. I grinned. Great painkiller. But of course they all knew that. Several of them, I saw now, were not so much wrapped as profoundly stoned. I'm writing a novel about the fire, I went on, spinning my facile lies. Got a connection with an East Coast editor who'll help me get it published. It's going to be big, totally awesome movie material. And, of course, a fat lot better to watch on screen than to live through, for those of us who were lucky enough to make it a solemn pause, and a choked cough, underscoring how hard it was for me to talk about this. One super thing. My woman was in Scotland, still is, working on her PhD dissertation, so she's fine. We'll get married when she comes back next year. Childhood sweetheart, we went from preschool through high school together, so like she knows me from way before the scars, when I was a swaggering dude. Hard to picture, but I was a player back then, Pretty cute. The kind of cool bro you would have gone for, tapping a front row blonde on the head. She cringed, then giggled. I winked. Laughter skittered. I stepped back. And my woman she's beautiful, star quality and incredibly smart, Harvard grad. Is that where you went to college? Snort. Nah, I had way too much fun in high school. Didn't get serious till second year of college. Here's the deal, kids, and I'm not fooling with you. Seize the day. You heard that? Saul Bellow said it first. Seize the damn day. It means enjoy being young while you are. Make it good. Don't waste your youth getting hung up on school and other stuff, or griping and wishing you were an adult or a child again. You've got a choice between souring out and making the worst of things, or having a blast, which is the road I took and the one I'd recommend. Your call, but don't blow too much time deciding because it's over real quick. Take it from El Hombre del Fuego. Five minutes left and I was hardly warmed up. Exploits from my storied high school and college days flooded my mind. Post-college travels with Hirsch. I'd keep that dude alive. More. Make a giant of him. Could have reeled out some recent tales like that of the murderer I overpowered in the greenhouse. But I held off, won their allegiance with a parting kindness. So if I tell you what this story nobody but George read is about, will you keep quiet about my doing it? George? Of course, his response unanimously affirmed. Here's the gist. Boy discovers he's adopted, runs away, upstream, saves a kid from drowning, figures out he's the kid and his adoptive parents saved him like he did this kid. Theme. Self-discovery with a dash of salvation thrown in. What's due tomorrow? We're going to keep discussing this story and write on it in class, as always. Wow. Okay. Good luck, y'all. I saluted them. They were pokey getting out the door, pulling their stuff together in slow motion. This was the best class I've had in a long time. Thank you. Yeah, you gave me a lot to think about, Mr. Man. Seize the day. Make a good tat for my arm. You're the man. El hombre del fuego. Thought with the scars you were a vet. We've got a lot of them in this town. Your story's way cooler. Hope you come back. It'd be so great to have you for a teacher. I think you're still pretty cute. Thank you, Mr. Man. Brilliant. I'd hit my stride in the first class of my first day of teaching. I'd be a rock star before the week was out. Except McKee came back, and the next class I subbed for at a different school was very well prepared and discursive. They hardly needed me once I'd taken roll. Still, I knew now that not only could I do it, but I was a natural born high school teacher. The classroom, stinky, drab, restive, would be the stage on which I'd play the lead. The courses in my alternative licensure program were a cakewalk after my serious academic pursuits at UNM. Their value arose from providing common ground to relate to experiences in the field. In a district hamstrung by the scarcity of instructors, Several students were already teaching on waivers and brought in problems of the day for us to dissect. It was the best kind of education for a novice. My untested confidence grew, feeding my impatience to begin. May lobbed that opportunity into my court. McKee was undergoing emergency surgery and would be out the last three weeks of the year. His senior sections had clamored for me to return as their sub small wonder given my golden day with them. I was hired as a long-term sub rather than a replacement teacher, which is to say, cheaply. Fine. I was in. Bye-bye, McKee, I thought, saying. Your realm is mine now and forever. That weekend, Mamia and I went in armed with cleaning materials and a vacuum, spent three hours making the room tolerable threw two large garbage bags full of disgust into a can at the rear of the building. It wasn't a showroom when we finished, but I would laid claim to the space in the process. My final act, a clear declaration of revolution, was to move the desks out of rows and into a circle, albeit a big one, but far more amenable to honest, animated conversation. I had newbie status on my side if I got in trouble— Imagine, if you will, the classic homecoming of a legendary warrior whose courage, might, tenacity, and skill have vanquished the enemy. Not an altogether exact analogy, but that's what I felt entering the classroom, a theatrically late entrance, the following Monday. Not only cheers and applause, but a standing O, caps in the air, yeah, even hugs from the least fettered of the crew. Here's what you can't fully imagine, even if you will. What that greeting did to and for me. I've had some exceptional orgasms in my time, but this surpassed them all in terms of sheer ecstasy. I grinned and grinned, bowed, called in vain to my delight for them to quiet down. They were talking over one another, All about how they insisted on my coming back, and how cool was the circle, and like, what had I already done to this trashy room, and I was the greatest teacher they'd ever had, and now they had something to look forward to besides the end of school. More than the end, even. Forget warrior. I was a god. Three weeks in May of senior year is no time to get into heavy work mode, but that's what McKee had planned. They were to read Crime and Punishment a tome that George himself was balking at a dreary way to punctuate their high school careers and I immediately freed them of that burden promising once again to summarize the novel and let them spark-note it in further detail for the standard final exam which I'd be required to give but then I'd be the one grading it too I assured them no hard ass I not in May with these adoring fans who quickly spread the word so that subsequent sections were jubilant upon arrival. Apart from indulging in plenty of story time, outdoor lazy classes, a field trip, a.k.a. creative writing exercise, to the nearby Breakfast Burrito Cafe, I did have a novel in mind to share with them, but knew I'd have to buy it myself and swear them to secrecy about reading it. At least initially, until I ferreted out the limits of the approved curriculum, which looked stunningly dull from what I could uncover. I decided to get the book first, make it a surprise they knew was coming, let the anticipation grow, and then bingo, bring it in, each copy in a brown paper bag to emphasize its illicit and racy contents. What would they find pulling it out? Hunter S. Thompson's wacky, maniacal, Fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Drugs, sex, rock and roll. Even for pot smokers who consumed impressive amounts of cannabis, the range and quantity of drugs in this depraved saga would knock them sideways. A few of them would have seen the movie, but reading and discussing the book was irresistible fun. Thompson and I would sneak tidbits of sophisticated cultural and political knowledge into their unsuspecting minds along the way. Friday. Copies procured second-day air and bagged. I stood beaming pierce-eye rays at the class until a profound, explosive silence froze the room. Among the many things that amazed me about myself, about teaching— is that, facing these kids, I was not conscious of my scars. They were part of who I was, a man whose distinctive persona the kids loved. Their acceptance became mine. They became mine. My moods, my whims, my passions were theirs. I could lead them because I could read them. My private aphorism. This morning I was in total hunter mode and regalia. Bright Hawaiian shirt, ridiculous safari jacket, hat, and shorts, hiking boots, dark glasses, cigarette holder. Ray bombing them, I thought someone would recognize the gear and call me out. But no. A circle of stairs, enthralled, watched to see what I'd do next. I strode the perimeter, Muttering, then leaped onto the desk, waving my arms, shouting, We can't stop here! This is Bat Country! and ducked, held the crouch for the count of five, then straightened, swinging my finger around the circle at each of them. Anybody? It's a line from Hello? Bueller? Bueller? Yep, times were not what they were. Indeed, They examined the bagged books I handed them like the relics from a lost culture that they'd become. A few had indeed seen the movie and recognized the title, but even they didn't know it was made from a book. So, not Bat Country, but Terra Incognita. Influent Hunter S. Thompson, which I'd spent nights learning in high school, I read the opening chapters to them, sidetracking to explain the premise. Got them to when the doctor of journalism and his attorney threatened to tear out and eat the lungs of a skag baron, at which point they were hooked. For added incentive, I finished with no quizzes on this one. Read it for the sheer magnitude of Thompson's savage journey to the heart of the American dream. And remember, keep it in the bag and don't tell anyone I gave it to you. Unless you want a new sub in here next week. When's it due? George, pen poised. You tell me, I fired back. Monday, Bean Dog yelled enthusiastically. Or whenever we're done reading it, proposed Hurst Jr., true to his forebear. I say we all try for Monday, Bean Dog insisted. It's not like we're doing anything else. Nods and murmurs of assent. I would have given them a week. I stayed on schedule with Crime and Punishment, summarizing the chapters they should have been reading daily. Made sure they kept lists of characters, themes, symbols, and related literary elements that would come in useful for the final. A crisp ten-minute jog at the start of class that they hung in for, aware of all they weren't having to suffer on account of my largesse. Then we'd get into the real stuff. Arguments over the choice and quality of drugs, cars, Las Vegas acts. I'd pull over on the shoulder of certain passages to dive into meteor discussions, such as on page 18. How can their journey be described as an affirmation of all that is right and true and decent in the national character? Or, echoing Thompson's question, but what is sane? And do you believe that somebody, or at least some force, is tending that light at the end of the tunnel? as he says on page 179? The kids especially liked skipping around in the novel, talking about whatever caught their attention, letting that topic lead to another. It was, as they noted and I already knew, like having a real conversation instead of a contrived discussion with pre-designated questions. I was always in the mix, but not obtrusively, let the ball pass naturally into my hands until one of them casually mentioned that he'd gotten a little lost on page 73 when Raoul Duke is reading the newspaper before escaping the hotel, and his comment launched my first rant. What Thompson is comparing here are the atrocities of the Vietnam War, outrageous torture and racist murders of our so-called enemies, denigrated as slopes, brutal crimes that were never punished, comparing all these horrors, with the five-year prison sentence given to the greatest boxer of all time, Muhammad Ali, for refusing to kill Slopes. The injustice of that punishment validates Thompson's destruction and deceit. Why bother playing fair in a country so lacking in humanity? Given those headlines, his cynicism is justifiable. On top of that, Ali was a black man, their favorite color to imprison and his being a celebrity made it all the better and being a great, big, intensely strong man better yet. They could get good press mileage out of jailing him, like nobody goes free if you don't go into the service when you're called and get some good work out of him to boot. Prisoners are the current slave labor force working for a quarter an hour at whatever job the wardens choose to give them. It's an industry, just like they say, mostly run by private corporations got to fill the beds to make money, and got to get work done for token pay to fatten their profit margin. It's the new Jim Crow, a new form of legalized slavery. When I was a senior in a Vista Grande high school not that long ago, we used to take a field trip to the state penitentiary in the spring. The year I went, they let us walk into a solitary confinement cell, and it was like being trapped in an animal cage, designed for breakdown. I would have gone nuts in there in a day. Then I thought about night, everything pitch black, and how lonely I'd get. It broke my spirit just imagining the terror and dehumanization of that kind of unlife. The inmates had one hour outside in an exercise cage on weekdays. They took us to the death house where the last prisoner was executed, IV still set up, clock stopped at 12, and after we saw solitary, I could see why the guy volunteered to die meaning he stopped the appeals process. You're dead either way, slow or fast, and there's no way out of the pain. Oh, they try to indoctrinate the prisoners with religion. Great audience, very receptive, but what a fraudulent way to recruit believers, hauling the hopeless into your ranks. I paused, just long enough for a breath. The question not yet conceived when Thompson wrote this is whether five years in prison is worse than five years at war. What's the relative PTSD rate for one versus the other? Who has a better shot at a life coming out of that scene? It's a bust either way. You guys, have you had to register with the Selective Service already? Of course they had. Just a piece of brotherly advice. Have a backup plan. The air had grown heavier, as though it bore rain. I knew I'd been talking too much, too long, in a vein too dark to leave open. But the kid's confusion had touched a nerve for me, though I hadn't realized it, because Hirsch's uncle almost died to save himself from being drafted and then killed in Vietnam. He used to get frothy telling us stories about those days. My best friend, the one I lost in the fire, his uncle was drafted to fight in Vietnam. The draft back then was a numbers game. You were assigned a number at random, so they claimed, and when it came up... You had to report to the nearest draft office to see if you were fit, and if you were, off you went to basic training, and from there into the jungle to fight a war with no good reason why. It wasn't like a Hitler-ruled nom. All our government had was this domino theory of communism taking over the world. And what they really were after was a way of boosting the military-industrial complex that churns out overpriced weapons of destruction. When Uncle Will's number came up, He wished he could take off for Canada, where lots of young men found refuge, but he had family obligations that held him back. He also had a very sure premonition that he would die in Vietnam if he went, and he couldn't fathom a more meaningless death. Not one to put his neck meekly through the noose, he headed into the draft office with a desperate plan, which worked out differently than he'd intended, though in some ways was even punchier. He took a razor with him, and he meant to slit his wrists with the recruiter sitting there, watching him. But the recruiter left the room, left him for a good while by himself, and he got restless and slit them then, bled all over the asshole's desk, who, when he came back, called 911 and gave my bud's uncle a 4F, which means unfit to serve. But to have to attempt suicide to free yourself... Why is this a culture that breeds and rewards so much violence in young men and then jails them for practicing it? So, a second piece of advice, and then I'm done. Keep your eyes open and a friend at your side. Hey, class is over. Wow, I really got on a rant, you all. Kind of a downer. Sorry. George came up to me as they filed out, mostly quiet. I learned more in the last 20 minutes than I have in all my years of school, he told me, sincerely. Thank you. He walked to the door, turned back. I know you think I'm insane to join the Air Force, but it's a free education and a terrific one, and I've always wanted to learn to fly. It's a really good deal for my family. That was the part I left out. The way the military kept itself going on poor kid volunteers. The rampant economic disparity in this country. Didn't work back in the 60s, or even the 90s, when those on the bottom rungs had alternatives. But all of this sad, heartless century, it kept the maw of war glutted with hapless bodies. I don't think anything, George. You'll be great whatever you do. They're damn lucky to have you. I high-fived his grateful hand. Keep ranting, man, Bean Dog called from the doorway. We love you. They did, and I them. It was the fulfillment of a dream I hadn't even dreamed. I swore to use this unexpected gift with care, to sustain it, let it multiply and go forth, as the Hebrew God commanded Adam. Was I the created or the creator? Who had been made in whose image? I mused, and striding headily to the teacher's lounge, decided both. The last week was a wild ride, beginning Monday with an unprecedented snowstorm. Late May, lilacs in full bloom, baby fruit on the trees. A foot of the white stuff that melted in the spring sun by noon, but nonetheless spawned a snow day. It was a miracle, for which my students credited me and I accepted their accolades with exaggerated pomp. Global warming was of course the true cause, and we should have mourned this further proof of the chaos to come. But being remarkably short-sighted humans, we celebrated our snow day in May, rather than grieving the end times that loomed. Friday was laden with year-end festivities, a bacchanalia before exams, climaxing with the debut of the almighty yearbook. In contrast with Monday, the weather was ideal for romp and gamble. Sitting on the athletic field, signing books for my kids, I granted myself the freedom to be one of them, wrote playful and flippant and ridiculous things, all lines from fear and loathing, I knew by heart. A bit impersonal, but clever approach, I thought, and quick. Never cross the great magnet. Do it right. Remember Horatio Alger. It seems entirely reasonable to think that now and then the energy of a whole generation comes together in a long, fine flash. Hang on to that fantastic universal sense that whatever we're doing is right. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. Indeed, but what is sane? Good God! You just backed over that two-foot concrete abutment and you didn't even slow down. Later, I was sorry when I read theirs. Heartfelt and devoted outpourings of admiration, effusive promises never to forget me, and honest hopes that they could be like me someday. Very personal, warm farewells that still moved me when I read them years later. On my way to the lounge to collect my stuff that blissful afternoon, the principal, Morris Wright, asked me to stop by his office. Could have been anything, but I was not concerned. Hadn't I come in during the last inning of senior year and scored a major victory? Whether or not he knew it, the kids and I did, and we were the ones being educated, the reason this whole system existed. If someone had ratted out my deviation from the prescribed curriculum, so what? But far from chastising me, Morris invited me to return in the fall, teaching English full-time to the seniors on a waiver while I completed my licensure requirements. He'd been besieged by requests to hire me. McKee would not be returning. Yes, yes, yes. Ecstatic, I agreed before we'd even discussed salary. I'd done it. Become a teacher by being myself, bold and unabashed broken the rules, but taught truths. Mamia had been right, and now she too would be liberated by my success to do as she pleased, once she discovered what that was. I floored Pac-Man 2 driving home, zoomed up over the 25-mile speed limit by exuberant force of foot. The final exam I gave was breathtakingly easy, in part due to McKee's limited imagination, or indifference, and my alternative approach to learning. He asked, on a scale of 1 to 10, how well does Raskolnikov's punishment fit his crime? And explore a major theme that connects this novel to our previous readings this semester. That's one you could use annually no matter what you were teaching. My question was, what is the American dream in Thompson's novel, written in 1971? Use specifics from the book to develop and defend your position. Then explain what the American Dream is now, in your view. Since McKee kept terrible records, which Morris verified, I graded the kids on the last three weeks and the final only. All A's. Felt like Raoul Duke himself screwing the system. Wouldn't get away with that again, but just once was so sweet. At prom the following Saturday, a cluster of my kids had gathered around me. I thanked them for their gracious words in my yearbook, and they thanked me for their A's, the first some of them had ever made in English. What a tight-cheeked culture we are, doling out scarcity with self-righteous sadism. The Founding Fathers would never have heard of grades, and here we treated them like received wisdom from the Divine. Yes, I did say some of that. Man, I love that we never know what's going to come out of your mouth. I came to school these last weeks just to see what you were going to do or say. It's amazing to have a teacher who's not, like, totally predictable, but totally smart and willing to put it all out there. You're a wise man. Basking in their adulation, I couldn't help sharing the news about next year with them. Hands slapped and clapped. Congratulations flowed. They bemoaned their leaving just as the greatest teacher ever arrived. Why does the best stuff always happen after we graduate? I recalled saying the same thing my senior year, but shrugged benignly instead of telling them that. I wish you could get a job at my college. Thanks, but I've got a job to do here. Whole new bunch of eyes to open. Have you met the juniors? They don't deserve you, man. No way. A snarky bunch of deadbeats. It would be such a rush to have you again. Oh, man, yeah, like a miracle. I'd even major in English. I thought you were planning to anyway, Dune. He just said that to make you love him. This way, kids, you get to come back and visit me. Give those deadbeat seniors I'll be teaching your sage advice about college. Show them the road ahead. Maybe teach a class with me. Want to dance, man? Bean Dog, a.k.a. Melanie, of course. She grabbed me, and there where I'd never wanted to be again I was, but this time with a hot teen shaking her booty at me to a killer beat. I grinned at the upheld phones of my groupies and strutted into the undulating horde. At graduation, Sonora, the luscious blonde I'd embarrassed the first day, hugged me. You rock my world, teacher man. You're the heart at the heart of it. She'd been quieter than most of the others during this year-end love fest, which I thought was due to my inept start with her, but not. The scent of the roses she was carrying trailed me as I hand-shook my way through the festive scene. One last look around the classroom, all alone. Even after the cleanup, it was shabby and plain. With Mamiya's help, I could get some more color into it this summer, bring in some plants and funky posters for the walls, spiff it up a bit. But the key to its beauty was the kids, their thinking and laughter, triumphs and struggles, all the moments that transpired within the barren cinder blocks. It was weird to feel bereft. Never had I greeted the summer with ambivalence. Never had I been impatient for school to begin again. Strange. How my aimless quest to escape from the longing to return to Eden had led me to the discovery of a paradise, a place where I belonged. Rejuvenated, transported to a timeless realm where my companions were always eighteen, I could revel in the illusion of eternal youth. Sure, that might be harder when I was fifty, but I had decades to go before decrepitude. Spiraling around the circle of desks to the middle, it struck me that this was clearly the place to be. At the heart, not the head of the class. I had gone there instinctively and been enormously successful, but next fall I would do it consciously. Lead from the center.